Welcome everybody to our second ever episode on the Revis and Butthead podcast. In this episode, we will discuss our thoughts on some of the rumors that have been circulating the Jets recently. But first, I think it's important to start this show off with a little bit about ourselves. Starting off with me, I am 24 years old. I I work as a mechanical engineer and I've been a Jets fan for as long as I can remember. My earliest memory of the Jets is actually watching Maurice Jones-Drew tear up their defense down in Jacksonville. I, th- I, th- I think that was in about 2005 or so. But other than that, there was a lot of good memories. And I, one of my favorite memories is, I think, every other millennial and Gen, Z, uh, Gen Zers, right, young people memory is when the Jets beat the Patriots in the divisional round of the playoffs. Now, if I had to pick my favorite play ever as a Jets fan, I I think I'd have to pick week one against the Dolphins. Brett Favre is the quarterback. And on the play, it was a play action, pressure closing in almost in his face, and Favre launched it to Cotri for a touchdown for about 50 yards. Great play. It was was at that moment where where I say to myself, is this how offense is supposed to look? To this day, I haven't seen that again. But at this point, I'd like to toss it over to my co-host, Hussein. Hussein, tell, tell the listeners something about yourself. What's up, guys? I would like to say that in the last episode, we were so excited to get rolling that we just said our names and just started talking. Like, no introduction, no who are. Hilarious. Um, so I'm Hussein. Um, I'm from Long Island. I go to med school in Chicago now. I'm 23 years old. I've been a Jets fan, honestly, since as long as I can really genuinely remember football. Favorite player growing up was Darrell Revis. I played corner in high school because of Darrell Revis. My favorite memory, well, I mean, I was going to say the, uh, the Santonio Holmes touchdown catch in New England in the playoff game. Then Joe kind of semi-stole mine and saying the Patriots game, like that game. So I'll pick a second one going off of Darrell Revis. That pick six he had against the Cowboys at 100-yard, on, I think it was Sunday night football, like one of the few times in the last decade we've been on Sunday night football. It was, I think the like nine 11 anniversary, it was just crazy. Like that, that was, that was legit. That was legit. Um, and now I'm too emotionally attached. This is the most toxic relationship I've ever been in my entire life. I couldn't get out even if I wanted to. So here I am making podcasts about them now instead. I, I think the one to, uh, toxic relations that, relationship that I have that's worse than the Jets is the one that I have with Madden. Because unfortunately, unfortunately I, I decided to give my money, aka $70, which is a ripoff for this year's Madden. Every single but, year. Every single every, year. Like, I'm going to give him the $70. Like, day two of the game. This is terrible. Next year, got to give him the $70 again. And it's $70 now, too. It's not 60 anymore. But, and, and nonetheless, we're going to shimmy our way into the first topic of rumors that we have to get through. And the first one is going to be the Braxton Berrios re-signing slash contract situation. Now, we, we all uh, got a little attached to Braxton Berrios at the end of the year. He started making some tough, tough, tough catches. He made some damn good returns, especially against Jacksonville, where to my listeners out there, me and my co-host Hussein actually went to that game. So much fun. And bonus, I started Braxton Berrios in my fantasy league that week, and he came in clutch with that kickoff return for a touchdown. He's a tough player. He's likable. The reports about him getting $9 million, I can't get behind that. I, don't, I would not sign Braxton Berrios $9 million. That's just way overboard. And, and we saw Juju Smith-Schuster, who's another sh- slot receiver. He only got $7 million. To, for on a one-year contract and Juju's production has honestly doubled well, to almost tripled Braxton Berrios's production. So if, if I'm going to have to put my, my cap in the Braxton Berrios negotiations, I, I think I'd have to say my cap would be about five and a half million per year, which is kind of on par with 
what Keelan Cole got from the Jets last offseason. And as we know, Keelan Cole, when he came over from the Jags, he had some uh, returnability as well, whether it's punts, kickoffs, whatever. But if you look at Keelan Cole's stats over the years, he, he's had much better production out of the wide receiver spot than Braxton Berrios. So f- for that simple reason, five and a half million is, is my maximum. What, what, what do you think, Usain? I totally agree. If anyone, Braxton Berrios has every right to go out and get the most money possible that he can get. If anyone genuinely wants to pay Braxton Berrios $9 million, good for them. You can have him. I love I love you, Braxton Berrios. You're a very attractive guy, but we cannot <laughs> pay you $9 million. Um, we just can't. Like you'd be he'd be more, he'd be higher paid than most wide receiver threes, realistically, probably the highest paid. And he's coming in as a wide receiver four, realistically, maybe even sliding down to five, depending on how the draft goes. So you're talking about a wide receiver four slash five, obviously an electric returner, but getting nine million dollars, like. I know some Jets fans are like, oh, we lost Andre Roberts and it would be the same thing. But like, it's really not just kind of prioritize that position in the draft. If you lose him, double dip at receiver early. Take, we talked about it last time, call Calvin Austin from Memphis as a replacement for him potentially. Um, make an effort to replace it. Just don't ignore it if he leaves, but don't also overpay him. And Joe Douglas is like the stingiest person with money I've ever met. So I don't Any think he will not go over $6 million for him anyways. So I, I hopefully it's a non-discussion in about a month from now. Hopefully right. get him back for three years, 15 to $18 million. And that's, that's it. Right. And, and we just, we just saw uh, Joe Douglas have to ne- renegotiate with Jamison Crowder to get his contract down. And we we've seen that he does not like overpaid slot receivers. And, and he actively went to address that. And, he was a smart man and he used those finances and relocated them to another need and signed Morgan Moses. So that's just what smart GMs do. Now, I, I think now would be a great time. Speaking of Joe Douglas and offensive line his, with his background, I think it'd be a great time to, to start discussing the rumors that we hear about Becton maybe going to right tackle. How Robert Sala stated it's George Fant's job to lose and what it means, what it means for the future of the offensive line. Hussein, what's going on? Okay. First of all, I hate, you know, like metrics like ESPN, win block, you know, like pass block win rate, PFF. But like when it comes to evaluating offensive linemen, especially when you don't have NFL game pass in all 22, it's about some of the better metrics you can use because it at least gives you somewhat of an idea. Like I kind of like to like take the averages of both and see if they're kind of similar. I know they must kind of be right. George Fant pass blocking a left tackle kicked it out of the park at every metric last year. Like just, he was a top five left tackle in terms of pass blocking last year. You don't uproot that. You don't change that. It's you just don't hand the job back to Mekhi Becton at left tackle. And Salah said that. And I feel like I've been saying that for weeks now. And it's got like a lot of backlash, but Beckton played right tackle at Louisville. It's not the end of the world if he moves to right tackle. And let's be real, it's a pipe dream saying we can count on Beckton for 17 games anyways. So get Beckton, play him at right tackle, get a lineman, play him at right guard in the draft at number four, hopefully, and put your best five starting offensive line out on the field at any given point in time protect Zach Wilson at all costs. See, I, I I'm in the, I'm in a very similar situation as what you just said, he's saying, cause I completely agree. First of all, the scenario, sh- it, it should no way be off the table completely. Beckton had a great rookie year and all he dominated when he played, but that's the key word. When he played, he, he left games, his rookie year several times. he, he he couldn't he can't really be counted on to play a full season yet. We just have not seen it. And he lasted about what was it, a quarter in week one this year before GVR's gross mishandling of the defensive lineman caused him to get hurt. It was the third quarter of Zach Wilson's first ever touchdown pass. So that kind of sucks. Talk about a bittersweet moment. I mean, that injury is not his fault. And yes, no. t- he's 370 pounds. It's gonna take him longer to heal from a knee injury. That's, I'm not debating that. I'm not saying, oh, he's out of shape. Oh, he's out of weight. But you don't uplift George Fan With that, at least a competition. I think a competition helps Mekhi back then. Uh, there's been a lot of questions recently about his, his ability to control his weight, 
his motivation, his willingness to work. And what better way to bring that out of a young athlete than a competition? Just because you were the first round draft pick a couple of years ago doesn't mean you're entitled to it. And George Fan came in and played at an elite level. So what reason do the Jets have to just kick Fant off to the bench or whether it's the right tackle? What, what purpose? It doesn't really serve any. So I agree. Put the best five out there. Protect Zach Wilson because Zach Wilson, when it comes down to it, these next five to 10 years of this franchise, wherever the trajectory is, it's, it largely depends on Zach Wilson. So, and going back to what you said about the knee injury, I, I agree. It's, you know, a 370 pound man is going to take a, a lot longer to rehab a knee injury compared to someone who's even 320 pounds. Those 50 pounds make a big difference. And unfortunately, when you get surgery and you decide to play video games and stream and eat and you start to get a little heavier and that that makes the rehab process go a lot longer. And originally, a, what it was a four to eight week injury. It turned yeah. into a full season injury. I do think that four to eight week timeline was way overblown for a guy his size having knee surgery. It's set unrealistic expectations. I think the team doctors gave that four to eight week time period really for a player that's maybe Zach Wilson size. Because we, because Zach Wilson missed a couple games with his PCL injury and he was back. And he, even in the Texans game, he looked shaky. He looked shaky on his knee. I, I think Just, relatively speaking, Zach Wilson missed a month and he didn't even have surgery. So saying Beckton should have been back in a month, two months on un, unwise, unfair. Now saying com, coming from your medical background, do, do you have any, do you have any idea of what could have went wrong with Mekhi Beckton's injury in terms of just, Forgetting the whole 370 pounds, do, do you think that how long it took was at least realistic? Um, for him of his size, absolutely. Um, medically speaking, to that sense, you know, you have knee surgery like that. I can attest to it. I tore my ACL once. I had this, I had the surgery for it. You're basically laying on the couch. Obviously, it's not the same procedure, but you're laying on the couch, unable to get up by yourself for close to two weeks. There's not much moving happening around there. Obviously, a guy's going to gain weight. I gained weight. You know, it, it happens. Like, you're kind of – you're bedridden for two to three weeks. You can't do much about it. So, it, that's just how it happens. And then he had to not only rehab the knee and heal the knee, but then get back into playing shape and game shape and drop the weight. And it's just a lot of factors came together that just kind of made it – you know, spiral down downwards for him. It, it definitely snowballed a little bit at the end for him, especially when he started to get on the practice field. I think starting week 15, maybe, or week 14. And at that point, I remember thinking as, as a fan, I was just like, why bring him back? Just, just let him sit the rest of the year. But I, I'd like to, I'd like to go on to my next point. And, and that's just considering George Fant, Connor McGovern, LDT, they're all becoming free agents either this year or after next season. That's a lot of uncertainty. The Jets, that they shouldn't get complacent and stop adding to the offensive line this offseason. I've seen some Jets fans on Twitter seemingly getting frustrated about all this resources poured into the offensive line, which I, I can sort of understand when there's so many other issues around the team. But when it comes to the to the success of this franchise in the future, I, I can't iterate enough that it's it's honestly all on Zach Wilson's shoulders with the coaching staff getting some of the responsibility in the front office as well. Now, obviously, it's the front office job to surround him with talent, and it's the coaching staff's job to to really coach him up and and get him uh, up to full speed and get him to the point where the the game starts to slow down for him. But the best way to do that draft elite offensive line talent. And I've, I've also seen some, some people saying that the, the Jets can rely on George Fant coming back. That's no sure thing. If, if George Fant really, really wants to stick to his guns as a left tackle, especially after this year, he, he could demand the left tackle job before he would resign. And it's fully up to him if he would want, if he would want to come back. Because certainly how he's played at right tackle in his first year, 
and left tackle this past year, he's definitely going to have some suitors. So to, to just expect him to come back easily, it's just, it's unrealistic. With all that being said, I'd still definitely draft an Evan Neal or Iguanu in the first round. And if that's not where the, if that's not the direction the Jets go in for whatever reason, whether if KT drops or, or they, they go in a, a completely different direction, they're well within their capabilities to, to trade up for someone like Trevor Penning, who showed off in the senior bowl. And they could also target numerous interior offensive linemen in that room. And they could even go uh, and target those players in the second round and, and finally start to fill out this offensive line room and, and get some depth. For, finally, we, we can't see Chuma, Doga, Dan Feeney and Sean McDermott or no Connor McDermott. I apologize getting meaningful reps in late in the season. It just, it, it can happen. So the Jets need to do everything in their power, protect Zach Wilson. He's saying, do you, do you have any final thoughts on, on this back to the right tackle predicament? Yeah, really quick. If, um, you know, everyone said it on Twitter, if what Salo said about Beckton at the comp at the senior bowl does not light a fire under his ass, nothing ever will realistically. It's just the unfortunate truth. Um, and the offensive line, as you, you talked about it, George Vant doesn't have to resign. I was actually thinking in my mind right before he said that, do whatever it takes to resign George Vant this offseason before he plays left tackle for another offseason and has another great season at left tackle. Like he's just this is with George Fant, I don't remember when we signed him. He was like a converted tight end in college, like only played like offensive line for three or four years when we had him. So we, we hated that draft signing at the time. I mean, that freedom signing has just, it's gotten better and better. And it's, for guys as athletic as him, it's just going to, I think Arrow's going to keep pointing up. So I think you do what it takes to keep him. And, you know, b- before we move on to the next topic, I, I do want to remind everyone during training camp, Robert Sala said to the press that, that Becton was quote unquote, going through some stuff with, with regards to who, who knows what it could have been about. He caught but, some heat from Mike LaFleur, too, during camp. I don't know if that, you remember. That just goes to show that there are legitimate questions about Becton in this front office, this coaching staff, and just the Jets in, in the entirety of the organization. So it, it's no sure thing he's going to be the starting left tackle. So we'll see how that really decides to end up shaking out. I also think um, this is the last season we should be talking about the offensive line like this. It can be done so quickly. It can be done quickly, and it can be done right. Look at Kansas City. Signed Joe Thune, traded a first for Orlando Brown, drafted Creed Humphrey in the second round. I'm even ignoring the absolute robbery that was Trey Smith in the sixth round because you and Highway I were screaming. Robbery. You and I were screaming, take him like come like round four. But ignoring all that, they poured in most money given to an offensive lineman in free agency. Then traded a elite left tackle for a first round pick. Then drafted their first pick of the draft in the second round. Drafted another lineman. Then like it can be done that quickly. It absolutely can be. And teams should not be afraid to put resources into protecting their quarterback. On that note, I think it's time for us to move on to our next topic. And that next topic is how the Jets reportedly love Kyle Hamilton. Hussein, do you love Kyle Hamilton? I've told you numerous times, if I were to make a big board, Kyle Hamilton is probably number one. He's the best pure football player. And I'm not making this big board like Jets related, just my own personal opinions. Kyle Hamilton is the best player in this draft. He's the best pure football player in this draft. Instincts, athleticism, leadership. He's a captain at Notre Dame, for God's sakes. He is everything you want. I don't care that he's a safety. Like, yes, positional value matters, but like he's the best player. Obviously, the Jets love him because he is, if not the best, a top two or three player in this draft. You'd be dumb not to love him. Does that mean they'll take him? No, they do understand positional value. It is a thing. They're not going to take a safety that high unless they go ahead and sign Devonte Adams, Chandler Jones, on whoever the best lineman is on the market. Then, yeah, we could talk about drafting Kyle Hamilton, but it's never going to happen. You can love a really good player, but also not have plans to take him because it doesn't fit what you currently need. Hussein, that, that, I think that's probably the best point you've made probably since I've met you and when, when we went to college. Wow. That kind of hurt, honestly. That hurt? 
Hey, well, I, did, I I really think you hit the nail on the head with, with that take because I 100% agree. And I, I would like to point out to our listeners that we are def- definitely, and I repeat, definitely not always going to agree. But in terms of Kyle Hamilton, he is a damn good football player. He's fast, big, instinctual. He, he just kind of has a way of knowing where the football is going and he can get there. His range in center field is also insanely good. He'd also probably be the best in the box safety in this class. If he wasn't also a free safety, he he's very versatile. He can line up in the box. He can line up in center field. He can man up against, uh, he can man the slot position. He can really do it all. He, He can move around the field very easily. And, in terms of his range, my mind always goes to the game against, I think, Florida State or Flor- Florida State. Florida State. That interception, he went from the left side of the field to the, to the right sideline and, and mm-hmm. picked the ball off. It was I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a college player pull that off. If, if the Jets on the off chance did draft Kyle Hamilton and people are complaining, I would just replay that clip over and over to them and just so they can realize how just absolutely ridiculous that is. And then they would kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm again, I'm not advertising for it, but you can. There is some logic there, just because he's a, he's a player. He's a fo- he's good football player. And and let me tell you, we are all about logic here on this podcast. As great of a player as Kyle Hamilton is, I the Jets just simply don't have the luxury of taking him so early on in this draft, yep. with so many other needs at so many other premium positions and. That's a phrase that a, a, that's been thrown around a lot recently, especially when this rumor first came out, is premium position. And it, it should follow that when you have when you have a team that has a lot of holes, you need you need to take your premium resources, picks in the first round, second round, even into the third round, and you have to take your money in, in free agency and you have to invest in that. And at that point, when you fill a majority of those holes, you can go out and draft a safety like Kyle Hamilton because only a player like Kyle Hamilton is going to finally put your team over the top. We saw it with the Chiefs when they signed Tyron Matthew. That defense transformed, but that's only because they had a Chris Jones. They had a D Ford. They had, of course, Patrick Mahomes and that entire offense, which we really don't have to discuss names because everyone knows them at this point. And as a little like interjection, I also, if I had to gun to my head, I don't even think the Jets get the opportunity to draft Kyle Hamilton. I think he's going to go to Houston number three. I'm not getting into that right now. I could talk about that for another 20 minutes, but that's where I think he'll be. I don't even think we'll get the opportunity. So it's what it is with him. I, I will say my last point on this topic being in a world where KT Hutchinson, and by the way, when I say KT, I always refer to Kayvon Thibodeau. In a world where KT, Hutchinson, and Neil go with the first three picks, the Jets would be stupid to not at least consider him at number four. At least consider him. A lot of people in that scenario, they want to go icky. I like icky. But I think it would be malpractice if the Jets ran the pickup for icky and not even consider Kyle Hamilton. I think there's a decent chance Robert Sala is going to be standing in that room screaming for Kyle Hamilton and Mike LaFleur is going to be standing in that room screaming for Iquanu and Joe Douglas and Mike LaFleur win that battle. But it's going to be an argument. I wouldn't be surprised to see that pick go down to the final minute if it comes to it. Now, I, I know this is highly unlikely to happen, but if he's still there at number 10, whole different ball game. You, yeah, I agree. You take whole him different ball game. You got I, I think if he's there at number 10, I sprint the pickup myself in my underwear. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, I agree. I think you have to take him there at that point. It's if it's like Iguanu at four and Kyle Hamilton at 10, then fine. Go get, you know, McBride and Dobson or something like that. Like you can still make it work in terms of pass catchers. You don't get an opportunity to draft a number, a top player in the draft at number 10 very often. Take advantage. Exactly. Now, we have 
we have even another rumor about draft players that are being loved. It's my favorite time of the year. Mr. UK himself, Drake London. Hussein, what's up with Drake London? Okay, I'm going to start this out with a very simple point. Anyone compares him to Denzel Mims one more time, I'm going to strangle myself. He's not Denzel Mims. For God's sakes, people just saw his, like, did you watch Denzel Mims at Baylor? And did you watch Drake London at USC? They are different human beings. And let's be, and let's start with nothing that's going on with Denzel Mims right now is a physical problem. That dude has some of the best physical traits in the world. Four, three speed at his size, his catchability, catch radius, like it's all up in the head for him. So even if you want to compare Drake London and Denzel Mims, you can't because you don't know what's going on inside Drake London's head. Now, off that, um, I think he's Brandon Marshall. That's his. That's my comp for him. And if people want to complain about that. That dude put up the most prolific season we've ever seen by a Jets receiver, probably will ever see in our lifetimes, doing exactly what Drake London did at UST all year. So complain about that. Way to tell him off, saying. I got very upset. I get very upset about this topic. Does anyone know if food poisoning can last an entire football season asking for a friend? No, do not wish that upon me guys. I, I've recorded this podcast. I am just don't know what got me, but I am just down horrendously bad, like skip school today. And I'm in med school and I skip school. Like that's saying something like I could like, it took all the energy to get out of my bed and onto my desk to record this podcast today for you guys. Hussein has the commitment that we all want to see from uh, Mackay Becton as Jets fans. In terms of Drake London, for, for my thoughts, I, I fully believe that the Jets scouting department likes him. He, he's a tremendous player and prospect. He, he's got a really high ce- ceiling, especially with his size. And I don't know how he's going to test in terms of speed, but he can move for his size. He's not going to test poorly. In terms of uh, that, I'd probably say four or fives if he runs with his ankle. That's still a maybe. Yeah, I don't think he's honestly going to run with his ankle injury. He may he may run at his pro day, but More when it comes to pro days, you can add on about I don't know a tenth of a second, tenth of a second to their time. Yeah, it was like but, um, just a little off topic. Do you remember? You see the Senior Bowl thing where like every quarterback broke like Josh Allen's record for highest throw velocity. Like every single one of them broke Josh Allen's record. Like they juiced the numbers so much. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that happened, honestly, because I, I, I could have sworn that when Josh Allen was at the Senior Bowl, I, I saw some someone say that he his hardest throw was 72 miles per hour. But that was the that, combine. That was the combine, was, I think. That was the combine. That was the combine. Okay. So I guess we're going to find out if these quarterbacks have the legit arm strength as this, uh, what the Senior Bowl says when they get to the combine. If, according, if they work out at the combine. According to the senior bowl, this weak quarterback class, every single one of them has a stronger arm than Josh Allen. Do with that information as you will. <laughs> good point, Hussein. Very good point. Continuing on. Sorry, Drake London. And like you said, Hussein, I, I don't believe that Mims 2.0 is what draft uh, – Drake, sorry, I apologize. Drake London is going to be. I, I, London is just more physical. And he, he just he shows higher effort in his routes and releases. And if you watch Mims's tape at Baylor, and I, I, I fell into the trap that year when I was evaluating him that I kind of fell in love with him. But there were effort issues and questions when he came out of college. And you kind of see it on his tape where a lot of his production is him just running past corners and the ball coming his way, whether it's a back shoulder or an actual fade route. And you don't, you don't really, you didn't really see Mims sink his hips or really do any head fakes or anything to any route running nuances. He kind of just relied on his physical abilities. And when I, when I would watch Drake London, he, he shows a lot more in that regard. Now he's not perfect. He is certainly no Garrett Wilson or Chris Olave when it comes to route running but he definitely has his positives and he, he can, he can work on his route running. It's, and he moves very well as a large man. And it's, it's very difficult to move well as a, as a six foot five lanky, big built receiver like Drake London is. 
Yeah, at 6'5", people don't understand that you move differently. Obviously, you're not going to be as crisp or as clean as Chris Olave or Garrett Wilson. Nobody ever said that. That was never going to happen. But then, you know what happens when you do trust Garrett Wilson to win the 50-50 ball every single time? More often than not, yes. The, the way I would trust Drake London to win a 50-50 ball? Absolutely not. Do I trust Garrett Wilson to just lower his shoulder, like throw him a screen on third and one and just lower his shoulder and go get the first down? The way I would trust Drake London? Also, no. You know, he brings something different. Now, his route tree is kind of limited. It's mostly just fades, out and ups, comebacks, curls. But I think one thing that speaks to his athleticism is the amount of screens he got. He's, he was one of the better after the catch receivers. He only played eight games. This is through PFF. He played eight games. He led the league. In, he led all of college football in contested catches playing half a season. He was one of the best in yards after the catch, again, in only half a season. Yards after contact, he was up there with everything. So he's just not a win the 50-50 ball. He's going to hit you in the mouth and run you over. And if you could just make those routes a little better, if you can work on that with him and use him the way he's designed to be used, then I think he, again, just coming back to this, Brandon, he's going to be Brandon Marshall. And it's kind of the same take as Kyle Hamilton, where you'd be foolish for not saying you're in love with the good player. That does not mean Drake London is the number one receiver on the draft board. He could even be number two. If somebody's the number two receiver on the draft board, probably top 15 player in the draft board, you have to love them. They could love Traylon Burks more and take him at 10 if he's there. That doesn't mean they'll take him. They'd be foolish not to love someone as physically talented as him. It's quite common for teams to like more than seven players in the draft. Actually, I only like six this year, so that kind of sucks. Oh, that's, that's very unfortunate <laughs> considering we have, I don't know, about 10 picks. Darn it. But you, you are right, Hussein. But I, I, I do want to address that I've seen a lot of takes that Drake London doesn't fit this offense. And you, you brought it up with his yak ability, and, and he, he really wants to initiate contact and being used on screens. And I've even seen some, like, jet sweep handoffs that was given to him. It's a different kind of yak ability. It's different. Exactly. He, he has big strides. They eat up a lot of ground and he's it's, it's just the way he moves. You, you kind of are taken aback just by his size and how quickly he just, he, he, he gets to places and covers space. It's, it's quite remarkable, but in terms of his fit in this offense, I see a perfect vision of him in this offense. Hussein. And you want to know what his role would be? What would it be? He would absolutely excel in the play action passing game. And the reason I say that is because the Jets, Michael LaFleur, we all know he wants to establish the run. And he stubbornly stuck to it and tried to run the football for the first half of the season, even though it wasn't working. But when it does work and those linebackers have to commit to coming up and stopping the run, that leaves Drake London a perfect opportunity to get behind the linebackers where Zach Wilson can put the ball up above the rim only where Drake London can get it. And you can see a lot of the aspects and, and elements of the Tennessee Titans offense with Derrick Henry. And you, you can see that being used with Drake London in, in green and white. And I like to say that I like the way you defined above the rim because that's the exact same way people define the way Trey McBride plays. So it's kind of like it's backwards logic. If you say, I want Trey McBride, McBride, I don't want Drake London. You're saying that you like one player, you hate another player when they have the same attributes. That just mathematically, guys, that's just not there. Simple handouts. And if you think about Drake London, Trey McBride, and Elijah Moore in this offense, with, with Drake London and Trey McBride dominating the middle of the field, and then you have Elijah Moore operating on the boundary, running his comebacks, his post curls, his honestly go routes, fades, anything on the boundary, him and Corey Davis, they're going to eat because a lot of the, a lot of the attention is going to be over the center of the field. The last two things I want to say about Drake London is one, as a true freshman, he got on the field at Ellis at uh, USC, not an easy thing to do. USC is a pretty storied program. They produce receivers. They last year, they came out with Pittman and Monroe St. Brown. They produce receivers. His, his freshman year, true freshman, got on the field in the slot at 6'5". 
just remarkable. It just goes to it's, show what kind of caliber talent he is. And that's just, it's, it's a big difference from what Mims is. You know, Mims was a late second rounder, Drake London. So he's a, you could see in this tape, he's definitely a first round prospect. Now, ultimately, my, my, my final thoughts on Drake London is that I would be happy if the Jets liked the Drake London. I would be very happy if they took him a 10. Even if they trade, they could probably even trade down and potentially get him still. I, I do, however, believe that the Jets have their eyes on a different receiver prospect. And it's also important that we as fans realize that teams are going to like multiple wide receivers in, in the same class, but you can only take one with your pick. So it's you love Drake London, but do you love anybody more? That's the question the Jets have to ask themselves. I agree. And I do think um, this conversation may be a bit of a moot point because I'm also pretty convinced that they will trade for a receiver before the draft. It will be addressed. I think they want to bring a veteran into the room anyways, but that's a whole other thing. The last thing with Drake London is that if you watch Zach Wilson's college tape, that guy threw up more 50-50 just win deep balls than any other quarterback in college football. It was his favorite thing to do. And he had receivers at BYU who, who won those balls for him. We don't have anyone who can win those balls right now. That's the ball Zach Wilson likes throwing. And we saw him. He's thrown those balls this year. The amount of times you saw Corey Davis drop a 50-50 deep ball, even Elijah Moore dropped a few. Like I want to rip the, my hair out. Imagine the Tennessee game, but instead of Corey Davis, it's Drake London running those deep balls. And then you still have Corey Davis and Elijah Moore to do whatever you want over the middle of the field. So he loves throwing the deep ball. Get him a guy who can catch it. Not even that. The, uh, against Tennessee, but the Elijah Moore uh, dropped pass against the Panthers in week one. If that yeah, was Drake London, he's, co- he's, he's coming down with that and every day of the week. And if, if that Drake play London. is made, if that play is made, that offense that could have looked a whole lot different in that first half. A whole if lot that's, different. If that's Drake London, there's a pretty decent chance. I don't know if he catches it, but he just throws that corner, corner back to the ground and scores a touchdown. Like, not just catches it. Physicality is an important aspect of being a receiver. With that being said, we're going to move on to our final topic for this Rumor Mill episode. And that's going to be about the edge rushers. Hussein. If many of you guys saw it, Robert Sala at his Senior Bowl press conference talked about how much the edge rusher matters to him. Um, it does to this defense. You can't really talk about it. And I'm going to kind of throw in a little tidbit with this too. Like I am, Joe knows this. This is one of the key things we actually disagree on is that I am just about religiously against taking a quarterback at 10, um, religiously against it. Don't want to do it. And here's a big reason why I was, um, you know, bedridden today. And one of the things I found out, you know, what was the worst year of Richard Sherman's career? What was it? The first, his first year in San Francisco, lowest career PFF grade, no picks, career alone pass deflections. Want to know the one of the best years of Richard Sherman's career? Not the best, but like what? The year after when he got named the second, not the best year, but like he got named the second team all pro the year after. So what had him go from a, what was a average to a slight average player to an all pro? What changed? He got older. He went from 30 to 31 and he got better. Why? I mean, I would consider it's one more year in the system, number one. Number two, and, and I'm sure the edge rush uh, decided to get pumped with steroids that year with uh, oh. one named Nick Bosa. So it and, was a system. And I do want to add in, that is also another year that he recovered from his injury, which I believe he tore his right. Achilles in yeah. Seattle. So with the system, they ran the same system in Seattle that they did in San Francisco, right? So there's no system transition. But what they did is in one offseason – they added Nick Bosa and they added D Ford in one offseason. That's what changed it. That's what Fred Warner's 2018 to 2019. He took a huge jump too because they added two. They added not one but two very good edge rushers at the same time. Now I do want to defend myself at least a little bit. I just want to start off by saying I have an unhealthy obsession with Sauce Gardner. <laughs> Uh, he is my CB1. I love his style of play. Long, lanky. He can press. He would be a perfect uh, fit in the Jets' defense. So 
Hussein, I'm going to ask you. This is one of my situations where I would be all in at taking a corner at 10. The Jets take probably a lineman at four, whether it's Neil or Icky. And then at 10, they take Sauce Gardner. Then the Jets trade back into the first round and select Jermaine Johnson. How do you feel? I feel like I'm genuinely questioning if you did anything to wide receiver before the draft. Well, in that case, I, I would I would hope that the Jets would have addressed receiver, at least in free agency. But at least that opens you up in the second round pick to at least take some sort of pass catcher. Because if that's the scenario, I take a tight end with my second round pick, whether it's Ruckert or McBride. That's- I think the only time sauce at 10 comes into conversation is if you can add a, if you can add a receiver in free agency or the trade market. Right. It, it, but that, that right there would, would change the entire ball game. But if, this if defense, happens. this defense thrives on edge rushers. They don't thrive on corners. Like I don't see the whole, like I told you this, I made a point about this. Do you want to hear who San Francisco had at corner this year? when they went to the NFC title game. Uh, Trash-talking great Josh Norman. Trash-talking great Josh Norman. You guys remember him from Carolina? Yeah. And fighting OBJ? Yeah, that guy. He actually was – I think he led the 49ers cornerback room in snap count this year. That's a crime. Right. There, I will say I'm, I, I do recall there were some injuries in that room. They but also, he did get most of the playing time. Yeah, so his snap count, I'm checking it right now, 71%. The other two corners who were over 50, Emmanuel Mosley and Kawan Williams. Those are the three corners. They trotted out and almost went to the Super Bowl if they didn't have Jimmy Garoppolo, realistically. And I'm just going to make the quick point to everyone that Jimmy Garoppolo is a perfect example of why you draft for ceiling when you draft the quarterback and not for floor. <laughs> but... This defense thrives off edge pressure, and Carl Lawson, I love him. He's, I thought he was going to have a great year. He's coming off an Achilles. You don't know what you're getting. And him by himself is not enough. You need another guy opposite him. You, if, if your front four can be – because we also saw how much Salah loves to rotate. You just need more at that position anyways. Exactly. I, 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 I don't want to be trotting out Bryce Huff as a starter, as nice as he is as a, as a rotational player. And – he can do some really great things along that edge because in that Tennessee game, he was he was downright unblockable by the, if you, by the tackle. If, but if he you needs can to be a rotational edge. player. If you can add an edge, I think Bryce Huff might end up being like the best edge three in the league or up there because his him as a situational player is phenomenal. But again, if you don't add anyone to edge significant, and I'm talking significant, you know, I'm talking about a a high draft pick or someone who got who's about to get traded or cut. You know, if you don't add someone there then you're starting up Bryce Huff at edge for 17 games again. And you, you're not going to win football games like that, not in this system. Now, there, there are multiple ways to get an edge rusher this offseason, thankfully, whether it's a trade for Daniel Hunter or if, if they do end up drafting one at, at pick four or somewhere in the second round or in any other round, as a matter of fact. But I, I do like the idea of adding someone in free agency and that, and the reason for that is that I, I like a lot of the names that are there as of right now, of course, because tags happen, re-signings happen. So we really don't know yet, but just I'm just going to throw out a couple names right now. And I, I like these players a lot. We, there's there's Derek Barnett, Chandler Jones, a lot. <laughs> Hassan Reddick, Randy Gregory, even though he usually tests positive for either marijuana or PEDs once a year. Unfortunately, we're never going to sign Randy Gregory. Joe Douglas just won't do it. Oh, I agree. Randy Gregory is not a Joe Douglas guy. But even more players, there's Emmanuel Ogba. And I, th- I think a very underrated name that no one is talking about, Harold Landry. Dude, he's actually like, he's going to get paid this offseason. I really hope he doesn't because he can really pin his ears back and get after the quarterback. And, and if, if Carl Lawson can at least return to a reasonable floor for a player of his caliber and adding someone like Harold Landry, 
that is a very dangerous edge group, along with Bryce Huff rotating in. For what it's worth, I do think um, Harold Landry will be the second highest paid edge rusher in terms of the average annual value this offseason behind Chandler Jones. But the guy you talked about and somebody that I, I've told you about him so many times about how I feel about him, Emmanuel Ogba, I, I want him, plain and simple. Um, he played edge for the last two years for Miami. Nine sacks, nine sacks. Now, here's the best thing with Emmanuel Ogba. And I feel like it's something that it happens to the Jets four to five times a game, and we never see it happen. Passes batted down at the line of scrimmage by defensive linemen. I feel like it happened every every game four or five times. Did, did we ever have it happen? No. No, never. Our edge rushers need to make sure they get their hands up in the air, especially when the quarterback is about to throw that ball. Joe, do you know how many passes defended Emmanuel Ogba had this year? This year alone? I, 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 I'm going to say maybe six. 12. <laughs> yep. Wow. 12 passes defended, nine sacks. Wow. I, I wish you, I wish everyone could see my face, how I reacted to that because 12, that's, that's quite a bit. That's a lot. That's that, a lot. That is a lot coming that's from the edge That's the type position. of guy you target. But something to, re- to remember about Miami's defense is they're a cover one man defense. Yeah. They blitz a lot. And it's kind of like the same situation as the Ravens with Judon coming out. Now Judon had a good Judon had a great year for the Patriots. He was a what was he a player of the of the year candidate? Was he? I don't. I have no idea. I, I think actually uh, one name that we also didn't really touch on, who I think will become available, to Darius Smith in Green Bay. If he's cut, if I, that's a big if. Green Bay is fifty million dollars over the cap before. They've even considered bringing back Rodgers before tagging Devontae Adams, anything. And to Darius Smith, because they restructured him last year, his cap is like $28 million. I'll be shell-shocked if they keep him on the roster. Him and Preston Smith both, one of them will shake free. And to your point about Judon, he had 12 and a half sacks this year. Oh, he that was he, a pro bowler. He, he was great for the Patriots. But just going back to what I was saying about Emmanuel Ogba in Miami, Miami's a blitz-heavy defense, and – in a blitz-heavy defense as an edge rusher, you're bound to get some free shots at the quarterback. Not, not saying he didn't work for any of them. I, I haven't watched Emmanuel Ogba. I know he's a good player. But a, a lot of his pressures and sacks can be generated by scheme, and we've seen that with Baltimore because Baltimore just seems to just draft highly touted edge rushers, throw them out into a defense where they blitz a lot, pump up their pressure numbers, and they let them walk in free agency for comp, uh, comp picks. Not even highly touted edge rushers. They just take them and run three and four, let them blitz their way to eight sacks, and let them walk and just redo the cycle. Best system in football. Right. And that's a system the Jets need to strive for. Honestly, I sign Emmanuel Agba just based on the 12 pass defended. I would heavily consider signing signing him because something also that's really good is you're stealing from a division rival and making yourself better. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's a that's a that's a cherry on tops kind of situation with this. So, I think I've said everything I've said about edge rushers. Uh, what about you, saying Do you have any final thoughts on the edge rushers? I got everything in. In my opinion, edge rusher is the most valuable part of this defense. I don't care who you have at corner. I don't care who you have anywhere. If you're not getting pressure on the quarterback, it won't matter. Um, and that's that's all. That's all it really is because. We saw earlier, like right after that Tennessee game, Atlanta just didn't let us get pressure. They just threw under two and a half seconds every single time. You need to get consistent pressure. That's how you're going to win. Like you talked about, protect the quarterback helps them, helps you win an offense. Getting after the quarterback helps you win on defense. You force turnovers by forcing bad throws. Exactly. And forcing turnover on downs, whether it's punting, whether it's an actual turnover, or whether they go for a fourth down and actually t- t- it's a turnover on downs. Defenses need stops or Or a strip sack because we're talking edge rushers here. Exactly. And as as much as we, we love to pump up the offense on this show and, and score points and big passing yard stats and, and rushing yard stats for the QBs and running backs, the defense needs to get some stops and you can have all the playmakers on offense, but, if you can't generate a stop, that's just almost as bad to your rookie quarterback as, as it is to not supporting him at all. Mm-hmm. 
Now, as we wrap up, I'd like to say that this show is a milestone because you will never see Joe and I agree on anything this much ever again. I, I think we've agreed almost on everything in this show besides me want, wanting a corner at 10 potentially. Enjoy it while it lasts because in a few weeks, we're probably going to want to kill each other. <laughs> we, we, this podcast may suspiciously end randomly. So if that happens, randomly end. if that happens, it was me. It was Hussein. <laughs> Hussein, any parting shots? Any, any, uh, any other takes that you, you would like to share? No, I got all my anger out. You, you got can all tell your anger out. The look at my face. So got everything out I wanted to get out. All right, good. I think the only parting shot I have is uh, I love Sauce Gardner. I think he would be <laughs> a, a 10 out of 10 jersey to get if he was a Jet. You know, his jersey it's, isn't going to say Sauce on it, right? Oh, first. oh, I'm going to get a custom jersey with his number on it <laughs> and put Sauce on, on the jersey if he's a Jet, which he, he won't be. But if, if, if the stars align and it happens for whatever reason, 100% I'm diving in face first. The only way we get Sauce Gardens if we sign Chandler Jones and we trade for Calvin Ridley. That's the only which, scenario which, where I'd let that happen. Isn't, which isn't entirely out of the question either. This is this is the greatest part about this offseason. There's so many different angles and options that, that the Jets can take. And we're we are along for the ride just as every one of you are. You're gonna have a lot of fun. And I'm excited to see where this franchise goes in the next couple of years. So on that note, that's going to conclude our second ever episode for the Revis and Butthead podcast. Please like, comment, and give us a follow and help promote the podcast in any way you can. And just remember, everybody, draft season is upon us. Everyone, take care. Stop, homies.